Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your uh, character of love and for how you have worked to uh, reveal yourself to us and the plan you have to restore us into perfect unity with you. We pray that you will pour your spirit upon us when we draw close to you. And may we share this message effectively. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Okay, today we're doing lesson one in the new quarterly, the least of these, ministering to those in need. And in the... uh, First paragraph of the introduction to the quarterly, it says, Seventh-day Adventists are called to proclaim the everlasting gospel to to all the world. By doing so, we are simply obeying Jesus' words about making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe all all things I have commanded you. And among these things he commanded us uh, was that we uh, minister to the hurting, the downtrodden, the poor, the hungry, and imprisoned. First question, aren't all Christians called to proclaim the everlasting gospel or just Seventh-day Adventists? Uh, so, so it's not just uh, uh, some of the Adventists are called, it's all Christians are called to, to share the everlasting gospel. And um, is the message that Christianity is given, the, the common message that most people hear on the airways and the pulpits, is, is that the same message that Jesus taught? No. Yeah. And maybe that's why the Seventh-day Adventist church is called. Maybe they should have said, Seventh-day Adventist church is called to clarify and correct and actually uh, represent the true gospel because there's this imperial legal thing that has replaced the true gospel. Uh, Paul warned. Didn't Paul warn that false gospels would come? Yes, he warned about it. And so did Peter. So what, what did Jesus teach? What's the good news that Jesus taught? that we ought to take to the world today. That God is just like me. Brilliantly said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is good news. Really? Do you understand how much of Christianity corrupts that teaching? The Father and I are one, Jesus said. Life eternal, that might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ now sent. Our eternal life is connected to coming back to the true experience of God, which is revealed in Jesus that God is not like Satan has made him out to be. God is not the source of death. God is not the source of pain. God is not the source of suffering. God is not the source of disease. God is the source of life and health and, and, and regeneration. But what's taught in Christianity is, well, he's got a list of rules. You broke the rules, and now justice requires God torture and kill you. This is not the gospel. And, but, but good news, we have Jesus who stand before the Father, and he'll plead for us. And so now we have two different gods. We have an authoritarian magistrate who, who, who punishes, and we have a, an advocate who stands there to plead. Uh, suddenly we don't have one God. We've got two different ones in character. This is a corruption. We're called to correct that corruption that God is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. Why are we to minister to the hurting and the downtrodden? Why are we to do that? Because they need it. Because there's a rule that says, I ask people, why are we to forgive others? And they said, because God said, and if I don't forgive, he won't forgive me, and I can't have my sins pardoned, so it's a requirement, a legal requirement, that I do that or I can't, I can't get my sins pardoned. This is what I've heard from people. No. Why are we to minister? Well, it's true that they need it. Is, is, is ministering to the downtrodden and the hurting and the suffering and the sick in any way connected to the gospel? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How is it connected to the gospel? How in doing that do we reveal the gospel? Because God does that for us. 
What'd you say, Russell? So what law does ministering to people, the downtrodden, require one to operate within? What kind of law are you required to operate? For instance, if you're you're confused, if you see a starving person, they're starving somewhere in the world, they have no food. And you say to them, if you accept Jesus as your savior, your sins will be legally pardoned and you will be uh, declared to be righteous in in the books of heaven. Does that minister to the starving person? No. No. Get your mind around that. Does does that present the good news and the gospel to them? (laughs) What would? What would actually present the good news about God to that person? Food. Okay? Something that feeds them. Now, that's feeding their body, but Jesus said, I'm the bread that has come down from heaven. The manna that he fed them in the Old Testament was a metaphor for the bread of life, which is as food goes into the body and becomes broken down into various molecules that become building blocks to your tissues, the bread, the word that was made flesh, the bread of life, the truth that Jesus revealed as Father, those ideas come into our mind to become building blocks for our beliefs, our understanding, our character. And so as we minister to them and give them real stuff that helps their real body it's a lesson on how reality works how about this one you see a person left beaten and robbed in an alley and you say to them jesus is in heaven erasing your sins out of the books of heaven but you do nothing more does that minister the gospel to this injured person but you're telling them how their sins are being erased And how Jesus died to pay the debt. Isn't that the gospel? Do you see the problem? What was Jesus trying to communicate when he read these verses in the synagogue? This is found in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has chosen me to bring good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and announce that the time has come when the Lord will save his people. What was he, why did he read these words? What was he trying to communicate? Was, was the gospel being presented in this quotation? Do you notice this isn't a a legal thing he's talking about? He's talking about actually doing something in people's lives that's real for them. Whether it's setting them free from shackles that are made out of iron or the shackles that are made out of bad habits, out of fear, out of lies. The next paragraph in the introduction cites the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the parable. Look at the parable. In the parable, there's several actors here. There's the, there's the injured man who's been beaten and left beside the road. There's a priest. There's a Levite. There's a dirty, rotten, disgusting Samaritan. Who's the one that's right with God? the Samaritan but wait a second hold on time out how many Sabbaths did the Samaritan observe how many sacrifices did he bring to temple did he eat a kosher diet was he circumcised how could he possibly be right with God when he did not keep the law 
Ah, but wait a second. Do you see why they hated Jesus? They hated Jesus. They knew what he was teaching. This guy was right because he was keeping design law, the law of love, how reality works, how God's constructed us to operate as beings of love, intelligent beings, and beings who understand reality, beings who carry it into practice. So how, the, the rituals are only tools to teach the reality. It's like, it's like going to the sandbox and, and acting things out in, in theater. The, the rules and the, and the instructions of Israel are like that. Just, just try to teach them the larger reality. The Samaritan was doing what their little lesson book was trying to teach them, but they wouldn't do it. You see why they hated him. Third paragraph states, in other words, along with proclaiming the great truths about salvation, the sanctuary, the state of the dead, and the perpetuity of the law, we are to minister to the needs of others. Notice this sentence structure. In other words, along with proclaiming the great truths of salvation, the sanctuary, the state of the dead, the perpetuity of the law, we are to minister. Is there some separation in reality between the truths of salvation and the sanctuary and the state of the dead and the law of God and ministering to others? Is there actually some separation amongst those in reality? No. But see, they separate them as if they're standalone individual things. They're all actually connected. They're all part of the same fabric of reality. Okay, yes. What is your intake as far as the story of this American? What would be your intake on seeing a person on the side of the road with the signs or money or something? How do you react to that? So can we make a cookie-cutter rule that applies to all circumstances, or do we apply the principle of love? And the principle of love says, I want to do what's helpful for that person. What's helpful for that person? Doesn't it depend on whether they're actually in need or whether they're a con man? It's up for each one of you to decide what you do with your resources. Let's, let's see if this unpacks through the lesson, because I'm going to bring these points out. Let's see if this idea unpacks as we go through the lesson, because I, I, there's, there's a great principle involved here. And, and, you've, and you've, you've asked a great question that is going to, I hope, drill down to it. If... if Raise your hand again if we don't get to it in just a few minutes, okay? So these things aren't disconnected. They're part of the same fabric. We're outworking of the gospel. The sanctuary message is the sanctuary message, rightly understood, anything other than God's plan of salvation. Or is that what it is? So the great plan of salvation and the sanctuary are just synonyms are saying the same thing. Just one's a symbolic little theater and one may be stating it more overtly. How about the current state of the dead? Do you see that the current state of the dead is a therapeutic and merciful intervention by God to limit the pain and suffering of sin while the plan of salvation is being carried out to fix the brokenness in humanity and restore us to eternal life? It's part of the plan to allow that intermediary state where people sleep waiting for the resurrection so God's plan of salvation be carried out. The perpetuity of the law simply is the fact that the protocols upon which God built life, uh, or the law is perpetual, and are the protocols upon which God built life. And harmony with those is what God is working. I will write my law on your 
heart and mind. He's working to restore us back because no, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law will be changed. If it were, the whole universe would cease to exist if he changes his law because the universe operates upon his law. Life as we know it can't exist if he changes his law. So we have to be changed to live in harmony with his law. This is the plan of salvation. He has to heal us. He has to fix us. In ministering to others, is this the outworking of the gospel or is this uh, the, uh, how love actually functions? In other words, we can't minister to others without God's love working in our hearts, really. Why are such things so often separated? Why do they stand them up as individual things? Because people view reality through imperial law. And we have these standalone doctrines disconnected from reality. Salvation is about a mental construct, adhering or acknowledging or attesting to a certain creed, a certain set of fundamental beliefs, uh, going through a certain ritual, checking off the right box, uh, having the right behavior, worshiping on the right day, eating the right foods. In other words, it's a very, you, I've, got, I've got to know the list. Give me the list. So I can know the list, I accept the list, I claim the list, and that list includes Jesus pay my penalty, and so it's all a cognitive, mental list thing, not an actual relationship with our creator who fixes the brokenness in us. Second paragraph um, talks about justice. What is justice? What does it actually mean? What's justice? doing the right thing. That's simple. Justice is simply doing what's right. Doing the just thing. Doing the right thing. That's what it means. Well, how do you know what's right? This is a question he asked. We're going we're to come to that. How do you know what's right? Does the law inform you of what's right and wrong? Yes. Maybe your definition is wrong. Maybe it's about thinking the right thing and then doing it. So, I'm not sure I understand. So, justice, the definition of justice is wrong? Doing what's right? You behave uh, just if you think and feel the right thing. Okay, yes, no, you're... You do it. Yes, no, exactly correct. Exactly correct. So, what's the... This goes back to the law question, then. If the law is like the human law system, does the human law system, this courtroom really concern itself with what you think or only what you do. If the judge doesn't think and feel just, just, he will never do just to people. Yeah. I, I, He's judged like that. So what about the people who come in here to be judged? Is the court concerned with really what they think or is they concerned simply with what they do? That's how the human law system works. But you're transitioning us to God's law, which is the correct way to understand reality. God's law is not concerned primarily with what we do. God's law is concerned primarily with the condition of the heart. And that's why Jesus said, you say if you commit adultery, bad behavior, bad, 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 bad doing, you commit sin, I say if you lust in your heart. And so the plan of, of salvation under God's law is fixing the brokenness inside the heart and mind. And then when that's fixed, you're exactly right. But that's not how human law works. Yes. The Old Testament calls it God's judgment. Is that not the same thing as justice? I mean, we take justice negatively, but judgment is helping the poor, relieving the poor. The... So that's a translation issue because the word in the Hebrew can be translated judgment or it can be translated justice. 
So that's a translation into the English issue. Just like uh, in the New Testament Greek, the word translated justice can, is the same word translated righteousness because doing the just thing is doing the right thing. And so part of it is a, is a language thing because our language has different nuance to some of these ideas. But when you make a judgment, so there's the judgment, there's a ju- judicial judgment, evidence presented to a court and they make a legal ruling. That's one way to think of judgment. But there's also the way... You go to a doctor and you're sick and he evaluates you and does scans and this and looks at all the evidence and then he draws a conclusion. That's a judgment. It's called a diagnosis. We make judgments about reality and what's happening all the time. So there's this aspect of judgment, which is understanding how reality works and judging or determining to do what's healthy and right. And so I think that's the Old Testament purpose there that we want to make right judgments about God's methods and principles and act in harmony with them, which is the right and just thing to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sabbath lesson, third paragraph. It says, remarkably, our world continues to be something that God loves, even despite millennia of sin, violence, injustice, and outright rebellion. And even more remarkably, while God set in motion his plan for redeeming and recreating the world, he has given us, as believers, roles to play in fulfillment of his larger plan. First question. Why is it remarkable that God loves this sinful world? Why is that remarkable? Think of the implications here. It's remarkable because we think through the lens of selfishness and egocentrism and how the world thinks, and and we think love is something that we have to be worthy of or earn. And we don't deserve it because we're bad. We're sinners. We don't deserve love. It's remarkable we love some scoundrels like us. This is the, the idea being put forth here. But when we focus on take the focus off of self, don't make self the center of the question, Make God the center of the question. Is it remarkable that God is love? As we recognize his love and how awesome he is and his character of love, it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's beyond our ability to achieve on our own, but isn't his character of love exactly what we should expect him to be if we know him? If we believe scripture, if we believe what was said earlier, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, it's remarkable because... People don't really believe God is like Jesus. That's why it's remarkable. Now, let me give you a metaphor. If a child is dying of cancer, your child is dying of cancer, is sick, vomiting, deformed, cachectic, which means atrophied up and look like they're starving. If that was your child, or we saw a child like that, and then you saw a parent of that child willing to die to give their kidneys or liver or whatever it is to save their child, Would you say, remarkably, that child continues to be something the parent loves? It's remarkable. Why would that parent love that sick kid? That's unbelievable. Or would you go, no, that's exactly what I would expect. And we are sinful beings. If we sinners can love the sick kid that's dying, why is it remarkable that God loves this sick world that's dying? Isn't that what you would expect? So Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Ellen White, one of the founders of the Adventist church, wrote this in 7 Bible Commentary 472. 
The atonement of Christ was not made in order to induce God to love those whom he otherwise hated. It was not made to produce a love that was not in existence, but it was made as a manifestation of the love that was already in God's heart, an exponent of the divine favor in the sight of heavenly intelligences, in the sight of worlds unfallen, and in the sight of the fallen race. We are not to entertain the idea that God loves us because Christ has died for us, but that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. Did you hear that? Do you understand that's the gospel, the everlasting gospel that we are to take to the world and is not the common gospel of Christianity. The common gospel of Christianity is Jesus died to pay a debt and he stands in heaven as your intercessor to plead to the Father's blood so the Father won't kill you. And you wonder why the, 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 that, there's a, that the world is corrupt. There's a form of godliness in the world that has no power. And it's not like our memory, where all of a sudden they be misbehaving and they get uh, cancer or something. Before God created us, He knew what we were, what choices we were going to make. But before He created Lucifer, He knew what choices He was going to make. And some people discredit Him on that account and say He knew you were, you know, everything was going to go wrong, but He did it anyway. So what kind of a God is that? It's a God of love, because love only exists in an atmosphere of real freedom. It didn't have to be this way. It wasn't predetermined to be this way. It wasn't predestined to be this way. It was freely chosen to be this way. How, do we view, how does God view us, view you, view me, as criminals who deserve just punishment or as people with a terminal condition in need of healing? Do you see how the, the two views, criminals versus terminal condition, are directly connected to the way you understand God's law to work? If you accept God's law working like human law, we're criminals that God punishes. If you understand God as creator and designer and his laws are the laws upon which reality are built, we're sick in need of healing. What is our role in fulfilling God's larger plan? Because it said it's amazing, he's given us a role to play. What, what's our role? Why do we have a role? Okay, let me ask you this, Parents. Why do you give your children chores to do when you can do it faster and better? Does it just yeah, it does build character, and that's the key. Can they build character without effort? No. Does it do something in you to minister to another person? Can you get that same growth in love and maturity and compassion without ministering to another person? So why does God have a role for you? For the same reason you have chores for your kids. He wants you to develop and grow in godliness. And there's a law, one of God's design laws, it's the law of exertion, which if you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. That's not just physical. If you want strong math ability, work problems. Strong musical skill, practice your instrument. If you want to be strong in love... You've got to love. And that's not simply warm, gooey feelings inside. Sometimes the greatest acts of love feel the worst. Do you think Jesus had warm, gooey feelings inside in Gethsemane and at the cross? 
Sometimes love and doing the loving thing can be very painful in this world. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. Here's where the Bible story begins. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the fact that he spoke it into existence points to a power and process we can't even begin to imagine. Well, yes, in a sense, that's true, but in another sense, not quite. Because John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Is there a difference in the beginning of Genesis 1, 1 and the beginning of John 1? Or are they the same beginning? Or are they different beginnings? Yes, John 1 takes us back to a time before earth. Genesis 1 is when the earth began, not when reality began, not when the universe began. And John 1 1 takes us back to a time before there was no earth, there were no angels, there was no universe, a time before anything was created. Now, why is this beginning in John 1 1 so important? Why is it important we understand John 1 1 as the beginning? Well, what is the central issue in the war between Christ and Satan? The central issue, the core issue, the root issue, the foundational issue. The nature of his law Which extends from his character. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons that we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against, here's the issue, the knowledge of God. And take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Central issue in the war that Satan attacked by distorting how we understand God's law is God's character. Who God is. How he functions. Whether you can trust him. Whether he's the source of pain, suffering, and death that you need protection from. Or whether he's the source of all life that only wants to heal and restore you. This is the central issue. Now, when we understand that's the central issue, you understand Satan wants to obstruct your knowledge of God. He wants to pervert it. He wants to distort it. He doesn't care if you believe in God as long as the God you believe in is like him. In fact, he uses that. That's brilliant for him. So he wants us to get to believe that God is something other than love. One way he does that is by distorting the law so we see God as a source of pain that must punish and we call it justice. That's one way God is perverted to be something other than love. But there's another attack that has been coming into the church, including the Adventist church in the last decade or so, that's gaining ground and that's this distortion um, that, that, that undermines our view of God of love and that's the idea that there's no trinity. That in the beginning there wasn't the word Jesus who became flesh, who was with God, who was God. There's an attack on this idea, and this is a direct attack on the character of God, that he's something other than love. That there are not three individualities, three persons of the Godhead. Why is this idea destructive to the plan of salvation? And the message uh, for this time in human history, in other words, for the everlasting gospel? The everlasting gospel, the core message, is the good news about God. That God is not the kind of person Satan is alleges. That God is love and completely trustworthy. Now, if you understand that, love is functional. It's not simply a, a, a mood. It operates. And how does love function? It's other-centered. It's outward-moving. It's giving of itself. 
So if we teach that there was a time in universal history in the past where God was a singularity, he's no longer love. Because love cannot exist in a singularity. Love requires an other. And an eternal being outside of time, one second, eternal being outside of time, and this is the attack. God isn't love. But the minimum number you can have for other-centered love, by the way, is three, not two. With two, you can have selfish, narcissistic reinforcement. I've seen this in couples. Young couples get married, and they are just in love with each other. They adore each other. They both worship each other, constantly pouring attention upon the other. And they go on for five, six, seven, ten years, and then they have their first child. And when the first child comes along, the mother begins giving attention to the child, loving the child, and not being as available for the husband anymore, and he becomes angry and jealous and accusatory. See, he didn't really love his wife. He loved the adoration and praise he was getting from his wife. It was all about him. But the minimum number to actually be self-sacrificial, where you put self aside for the benefit of the others, is three. And what do you see actually functionally in how Jesus functioned? When he was on earth, where did he always consistently, reliably point the attention? Always to his father. He never took it to himself. And the Holy Spirit is constantly working to bring our attention to who? To Jesus. And the Father is pouring out his blessings to sustain and their operations and support them. We see an other-centered, constantly working love. God is love. If you take that away, and there's one other point. The allegations were about God. If we say that Jesus was something other than fully God, then Satan's allegations are sustained because what we learn at the cross now is that God is willing to sacrifice some other being to protect himself. The only way we learn that God would sacrifice himself for us is if Christ is God. So don't buy into this argument that the Trinity is some fraudulent doctrine. It is not. It is the truth, and it's operational, and it's functional. And you understand how love functions? All the other doctrines fall away. All the other arguments about it fall away. And yet they're still one. This is not a contradiction. A man shall leave his mother and father and join himself to his wife and the two shall become one. We understand that type of unity, that type of oneness. We understand that. They are one, but there's three. And all three have always existed? All three are eternal. All three have life original, unborrowed, underived. That's reality. Okay, you got a question. Yeah, when John refers to Jesus as Word, how should we understand the word Word? Because there were no humans, there are no languages, no words right. back then. So and maybe we should understand this word, Word, as a communication between Trinity, inside the Trinity. Some kind of flow of something. Interesting. And when God created, talking about the creation, now we understand they're other-centered in nature, they're love, that's how they function, that's how they operate, then how do you think they would build reality when they build reality? In harmony with themselves or out of harmony with themselves? So reality is built on the principle of love. That's how life works, the principle of beneficence. I'm not going to go through those examples in nature, we've done it too many times. 
And when you understand that, but when you get your mind really around that, and this was, this was a growing thing for me. I didn't always understand this. But when I understood it, now I understand there's freedom in the law. I never understood that when I was thinking of level four and below, the imperial law model. It never made sense that there's freedom in speed limits. There's freedom in tax laws. No, all these laws that humans pass uh, and the way that I was raised observing the Sabbath, rules, can't do this, can't do that. It was all the rules and all the laws restricted my freedom is the way it felt. Because everything I was taught was arbitrary. It was made up. And that's not how God's law works. When you understand how God's law works, harmony with God's law gives you liberty. It gives you freedom. Let me give you an example. A person who smokes a couple packs of cigarettes a day, breaking the laws of health, or a person who eats fast food, junk food from the, from the Big Macs and fries and all that kind of stuff every day, and they get significantly obese with heart disease because they're breaking the laws of health. Do either one of those people breaking the laws of health, as they go down that trail, get more freedom? While they're free to do those things, do they actually experience more freedom in their life? Or do they lose liberty? They can't climb stairs anymore. They can't bend over. I had one patient that was so obese, she actually couldn't put her hands together to touch, and she was having a grandchild be born, and she wanted to lose weight so she could hold her grandchild because she can't hold her grandchild. Does she have liberty? Does she have freedom? No. Well, where did her freedoms come? Did get taken away from? So harmony with God's laws. All of his laws are for our health, our welfare. And when you understand this design law and you move toward them, you get more and more liberty, more and more freedom. Monday's lesson and we got, this is where we're going to get to your question in Monday's lesson. Let's get to it. Um, first paragraph. It's easy to feel homesick for Eden. It's talking about Eden in the earth. I'm not even going to read the paragraph. What did Adam and Eve do in Eden before sin? Why did Adam and Eve have work to do? Why? In a perfect sinless world, why did they have work? develop character, something to do. This is out of Our High Calling, page 223. The creator knew that Adam could not be happy without employment. Do you think he had to file with the Equal Opportunity Employment Agency? (laughs) Without employment. The beauty of the garden delighted him. But this was not enough. He must have labor to call into exercise the wonderful organs of his body, his abilities, in other words. Had happiness consisted in doing nothing, man, in the state of holy innocence, would have been left unemployed. But he who created man knew what would be for his happiness, and no sooner had he created him than he gave him his appointed work. The promise of future glory and the decree that man must toil for his daily bread came from the same throne. Adam needed work in a sinless world. If he did, and he did, is work important for human beings today? And I'm not focusing on making money. I'm focusing on constructive activity. That's what I'm focusing on. Engaging in something constructive and meaningful. What does it do to the human being to not have any industry, any productivity, nothing for them to invest their abilities in? What does it do to a person if we put them in that place? Does it uplift a person or degrade a person to have nothing to invest their abilities and constructively into? So here's out of our High Calling 223. Industry is a blessing to youth. 
A life of idleness is to be shunned by a young man as a vice. However humble the occupation may be, if honorable, if the humble duties are done faithfully, he will not lose his reward. Industry is essential to health. If habits of industry were encouraged, a door would be closed against a thousand temptations. Those who lounge away their days have no, having no aim or object in life are troubled and dejected and tempted to seek amusement in forbidden indulgences which innervate the system and tax the physical powers tenfold more than the most taxing labor. Indolence destroys more than hard labor. Many die because they have not, not the ability or inclination to set themselves to work. Quote, nothing to do, unquote, has killed its thousands. If youth will preserve habits of virtue and strict, strict purity and observe the laws God has established in their being. Pause. What kind of laws are established in your being? What kind of laws would those be? Design laws. Design laws. If we observe those, they may preserve their lives, although required to perform severe labor during their lifetime. Long life is the heritage of diligence. Some young men think if they could spend life in doing nothing, they would be supremely happy. They cultivate a hatred of useful labor. They envy the sons of pleasure and de who devote their lives to amusement and gaiety. Unhappiness and heartache are the result of such thoughts and conduct. Nothing to do has sunk many a young man in perdition. Well-regulated labor is essential for the success of every youth. God could not have inflicted a greater curse upon men and women than to doom them to a, live a life of inaction. Hear that, folks. Idleness will destroy soul and body. The heart, the moral character, and physical energies are enfeebled. The intellect suffers, and the heart is open to temptation as an open avenue to sink into every vice. The indolent man tempts the devil to tempt him. Do you agree or disagree? This is our high calling, page 222. Do you agree or disagree? Think this through with me now. Take the truths, understanding the design laws, understanding the benefit of what it does to a person to be able to engage themselves in something useful and industrious. If you want to demoralize a person, if you want to destroy their dignity, if you want to undermine their God-given individuality, what might you do to them? Isolation. Might you seek policies to take useful labor away from capable people and give them government handouts. Perhaps telling society that every person deserves the government to provide their sustenance, give them money, phones, houses, food, but require no useful labor, no investment from them. And we're talking again here about capable people. We're not talking about people who have actual physical or mental handicaps that impair them. We're talking about people who are capable only here. So don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. And what if this was framed as an act of righteousness, as an act of love, as an act of selfishness? It was suggested that we don't give to people who are capable of useful work free things that were either cruel, selfish, unloving, or racist. <laughs> Do you think I'm making this up? No. When the Bible speaks of taking care of the less fortunate, the widow, the orphan, is it speaking of making them helpless dependents of the state 
or of giving them the opportunity for growth, for development of character, for a restoration of their dignity, for the growth of their individuality as children of God. What's it speaking of? When Naomi and Ruth, the widows, needed food, how did they get their food needs met? It was free. They weren't charged for it. They didn't have to buy it, but did they have to go out and work for it? Get your mind around that, folks. Does it have a different impact on a person if they're contributing to their own welfare, if they're capable? Yes, it does. It destroys the the dignity of of a human being to put them in a position when they're capable and not let them contribute. Do you see Paul's injunction? 2 Thessalonians 3.10, not my words, Paul's words. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Is that, so your question, do you see a man beside the road with a sign, hungry or whatever? Now, I've had several friends who work as contractors, they have their own contracting company, and when they see those signs, we'll work for food. They'll stop and say, great, I've got, a con- I've got a house over here. I just need somebody to, to take all the garbage, carry it to the street, and put it in the dumpster for me. You come do that. I'll get you a great meal at the end of the day. Zero people have ever taken that. None have ever said, okay, great, thank you. Love to do that. Zero. What does that tell you about their sign? We'll work for food. It's a fraud. It's a lie. It's designed to make you feel... Now, there's been some exposés done by some investigative reporters that looked at some individuals, and some individuals make several hundred thousand dollars a year doing this. And what happens is they have their raggedy old clothes, often with military-looking stuff like they might be a veteran, and they've got that. But when they walk off the street, they go get in their Cadillac and drive home to a $300,000 home. That, now, that, that happens. You see, in our society, I will tell you, in Chattanooga, there's a food bank. There are multiple resources that people in genuine need can go to and get stuff. So if somebody's out there on the street doing that with a sign at certain key places where, you know, there's a, you have to use your judgment. If the whole, but I'm open and I agree the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit moves on your heart and convicts you to, to give something, the Holy Spirit knows what's going on in that person. Do it. Do it. But we, each one, have to make a judgment in those circumstances. And there are times when, when I've known people who have been impressed to help somebody and they helped that person and it turned out this person was in really need. So, uh, so yes, I, I'm not suggesting we close, but we can't make a cookie-cutter rule that we help every person with a sign or we don't help every person with a sign. We have to be sensitive and thoughtful and willing to make a decision at, uh, with, with the insight we have and the way the Spirit leads. Back in the corner. I was just going to say, it's also uh, something you can do fearlessly in helping someone. Just if you, if you do something out of love, and it's the, a mistake. It's not like it's a sin. That's right. It, un- unless, unless, again, they don't want food, they want money. Now, you're not sinning because you're doing a good act. But how about if they want money to go buy cocaine? Are you actually helping the person or hurting them? So even though your intentions are good, good intentions can actually result in more harm if it's going to be used in bad ways. You had a hand up. Uh, in the academy, there was a course that we took as freshmen. I think it was called Youth Principles. I don't remember. It's, and it's mostly from quotations from Mrs. White. She said, you cannot help all the poor, but you can help one. 
So, I mean, that has helped me so much throughout the years. And that's a, and you feel guilty, okay, how many am I going to help, who, and all. If you can't choose, at least choose one. Yes, and so this is another thought. Instead of helping the person beside the street with the sign because you don't know, there are plenty of people you can actually vet, know, read, Neil, read, and you, because you, your resources are limited. You can't help every person in the city, can you? But you can exactly find people you know are in genuine need and help them with their resources. Yeah, that, that's really, really well. I know some people also, I think the food bank and some other places have these little coupons that, that you can give to people in need where they can go get a meal. Um, I've also seen people stop and say, hey, let's go over here to the, to the uh, restaurant and I'll, just buy, I'll pay for your meal. You can have a meal. Uh, most, most of the time, they don't take it. So there are lots of ways to do that. So Tuesday's lesson, let's get into something more controversial. <laughs> we are to be stewards of the earth, it says. Why does it seem that those who, in, the, in our society who reject God are more interested in a clean environment and protecting the planet and not exploiting animals by eating them than those who do believe in God. If you look in the world, it's the, it's the ones that are less likely to even God that are very green-oriented. <laughs> do we believe as Christians that we should be wise stewards of the planet? Yes. Do we believe that if we are wise stewards of the planet, we can save the planet? No. Do we as Christians believe that if we work hard enough, if we get the right policies, if we deal with our garbage and, and stuff in the right way, that we can actually save this planet from destruction? No. Does the fact we believe we can't save it from destruction, no matter what we do, contribute to an attitude that we don't really need to care for the planet? No. Because it's going to die anyway. No. So what difference does it make? Over what... Do we have stewardship today? The lesson points out that dominion of the earth was given to Adam and Eve, and so was reproductive ability. This lesson, lesson points this out. Are we to have stewardship over our, our reproductive abilities? Yes. By the way, what's it mean to have stewardship? Self-control. Management. Governance. Authority, responsibility. responsibility. Are we to have? Who should have stewardship over your reproductive abilities? Who should have that stewardship? You. Okay. What if a religious group came along and told people that women are required to, by God, to bear children for their husbands and as many as they can by the husband's choice, and they have no say in it other than to bear the children? By the way, there's a religious group that teaches this. I'm not making this up. Would this be a godly thing? What if another religious institution comes along and tells people that they uh, have no stewardship over their reproductive abilities, that is a divine prerogative, and that an individual should not interfere with that by using any type of birth control? There's another worldwide institution that teaches this. Is that true? Or are you, as an intelligent being, to have stewardship over your own body and what you do with your reproductive organs? Who you share them with, perhaps. What if a state institution came along and told people what they could do with their reproductive abilities? What if a church institution and church group started movements to try to get the state to pass laws about what to do with your reproductive abilities? 
We don't have anything like that. You guys probably don't even know, have ever seen anything like that, have you? I'm just making stuff up. I'm just making stuff up. It's like a fantasy island. There's no, nothing like that exists in the world. Uh, who is to govern your reproductive abilities as God designed it? Who do you think wants to corrupt it and have somebody else take charge of you? Has Satan worked to corrupt the reproductive gift God has given us? Should we as Christians identify the destructive uses of this gift and teach people the beauty and health benefits of living in harmony with God's design? Should we identify where it's been corrupted and and show people how God designed it and the beauty of that? Should we do that and the health benefits of that? Yes. Yes, we should. Absolutely. Should we pass laws to force everybody to use their reproductive abilities the way we determine is correct? No. Then why are we doing it? Would it be a godlike act or an ungodlike act to eliminate disease, deformity, and sickness? Godlike act, ungodlike act to eliminate disease, deformity, and sickness. You guys don't seem very sure about that. Oh, no, no, you're not going to kill anybody to do it. You're not going to, if you thought I meant to buy killing people who are sick, no, we're all sick. No, okay, no, I wouldn't suggest such a thing. No. I'm talking about killing the sickness, not killing the people who are sick. Eliminating disease. So is it godlike or ungodlike to eliminate disease? Not people. Eliminate disease, deformity, and sickness. Okay. How about doing so by genetically engineering our offspring to eliminate genes known to cause cancer or muscular dystrophy or Tay-Sachs disease? Would using our ability to eliminate such diseases genetically from embryos before they are born be a godlike or ungodlike act? Okay, a little wrong. people say you're playing God. Who gave you stewardship of your reproductive abilities? When God gave Samson strength, did he control how Samson used it? When God gave Solomon wisdom, did he control the choices Solomon made with that wisdom? When God gave human beings reproductive ability, does he control how we use it? Look at all the perversity out there. It's obviously he doesn't control how we use it. We pervert it and do all kinds of destructive things. How is it that people resist the idea of doing something constructive like this? And there's terrible resistance to this idea. Because we need the disabled and so on. The feeling is that if you got rid of all the disabled people, that would get rid of other people's need to help disabled people. (laughs) What about not merely removing diseases genetically from our children? How about genetically engineering and and advantages like increased IQ, physical strength, longevity, resistance to infections, rapid wound healing, eye color, height, hair color. How about if we could genetically decide an embryologic embryo and adjust those genes so when they're born, we have actually intelligently designed how we want our kids to be. Would that be a God-like act or an ungodlike act? Ungodlike? Wow. So you think when God made Adam, he didn't intelligently decide. He just randomly threw some stuff together and mishmashed it together and said, oh, I hope it comes out good. (laughs) He didn't actually decide how tall he wanted Adam to be and what hair color he wanted and and how he wanted his circulation to work. He didn't actually intelligently program all this into the DNA. Or did he? He did. We're not God. 
Ah, did, did he tell Adam and Eve to create beings in their image? Be fruitful and multiply. Did he give them a, a God-like ability? Does it say that we are like God and we're supposed to act like God? How do you... Th- if we have the ability to improve our children's health and well-being, reduce disease, and give them greater advantages, is that not a God-like act? Yes. It seems like those are good motives, but we hear about genetically modified food and stuff, and what we wonder is whether the scientists really understand the implications of what they're doing so that they really are coming up with a product. That's that's a second-order question. It really doesn't apply here. The question I'm asking is if we had the ability, not what problems might result if we don't have the ability and we try. The question is if we had the ability, should we do it? Yes, I would say Yes, but you raise a good point that to get there, we might cause problems, we might injure, we might cause worsening things. That's a different discussion. I'm, I'm skipping over that transition. to just saying, if we have that ability, should we use it? How about this? Do you think that if Adam and Eve would not have sinned, had stayed loyal, had stayed perfect in Eden, and they were told to be fruitful and multiply in that state, weren't they? That they would have had children, right? But do you think that they perhaps had such governance, as God designed it, over their own bodies that they could, with a thought, determine all these things I'm telling you by epigenetically altering which genes they want expressed in the offspring they're going to have? That they had that kind of control. No, no, this is before they sinned. This is in a sinless world, in perfection. And so they choose, uh, I want my first son to have blue eyes. I want my second son to have uh, different color eyes and so forth and so on. You don't think that they might have had the ability to make those choices? Or it's all random and it's like another hodgepodge, let's see what we get. Yes. But don't you see the problem with this situation this gentleman addressed? That even if we have some abilities, we do not have ultimate understanding of consequences. Yeah. Of course. This is the problem. Yes, and so right now, if we just do it the way this we're is doing it. the difference between us and God. He has this ability, so he has this right to do whatever he decides about Adam and Eve, and we don't. So then why did he give us this ability? If he doesn't want us to so govern it. So think we have the ability ultimately understand all consequences of our design work? This is what you're saying? Did anybody hear me saying that, that any of us know all things? No. no. So we don't know the consequences, all the consequences of giving... How we exercise the same power? So we don't know all the consequences of giving a person with an infection an antibiotic. Do we know all the infinite consequences of that? No. Well, then we shouldn't do it because we don't know the consequences. I can go all day long. Every decision we make, we don't know all the consequences to. You don't know all the consequences of buying those tires for your car versus buying those tires for your car. You don't know all the consequences of that. Should we then not buy those tires? I mean, this type of idea that we don't know all the consequences, so we're paralyzed, I can tell you right now, the Tay-Sachs disease, they're actually making those decisions embryologically now. They're doing that. And brilliant for them for doing it. Eliminate the disease. Make a decision that you have uh, several different... You know, I don't know if you know what Tay-Sachs disease is. It's a terminal disease. They die by 10 years of age or, or less. They die by 10 years of age or less. All, 100% death. There's no cure. It's genetically driven. And it's an autosomal recessive. So you have to have two bad genes to get it. So if your mother's a carrier and your father's a carrier, then if they have kids, one in four will have it. 
One in four will not have even the gene for it, and two out of four will have the, be carriers. So the, the population of people that carry this, if they know that, they can go in embryologically, uh, fertilize some eggs, and then they can pick the eggs that have, they're not even carriers. And thus, over a couple, uh, really in one generation, if all of them did this, they could eliminate the gene out of the human population. And it's gone. That disease is done. But some people argue you shouldn't do that. I think it would be a very godlike thing to do. What about the person who is born with this disease and you tell them, God made you just like you are? Oh, this is a great question. It comes up all the time. Because I have patients that come to me and say, well, why did God want me to have bipolar disorder? Why did God make my child with schizophrenia? Uh, and, and this idea, this is a myth, that it, God creates new life at conception. That is not theologically true. It's not scientifically true. Biblically, God directly created three human lives, and only three. Adam and e- Eden was sinless and perfect. God created him and breathed him the breath of life. Eve taken from his side. God created Eve. And the incarnation of Christ, God directly involved himself in when the Spirit came upon Mary. All three of those beings were sinless when God finished his work. But God gave them an ability that we've been talking about in here. And once they change themselves and corrupt themselves, they make beings in their image. And so when a man rapes a woman and she gets pregnant, the woman should not turn to God and say, thank you for making a new creation. Lazarus, in human terms, died. In God's terms, went to sleep and woke up. His body became necrotic and rotted, and then God rose rose him from the dead. But that was not a new creation. Lazarus didn't come from the resurrection. Lazarus was born from his parents. And his parents made the decision, I'm here today because my mother and father decided to have intimacies at one particular month of my mother's cycle. (laughs) If she would have done it a month before or the month after, I would be one of my siblings. It wouldn't be me. You get that, right? I have two siblings. They're not me from the same parents. There was one sperm and one egg that would make me. That's it, that combo. And God didn't make that choice. My parents made that choice. But God sustains the laws of health and the designs that he's written into our genetic code. He sustains the laws of physics and all the, print, and all the energies upon which we operate every day. So we couldn't do this if God wasn't sustaining all of creation and reality. And so it's, you can say God is doing it in a certain way because he's sustaining it all and all the laws and he's written it into the genetic code. But as an individual, it's because we've chosen those partners at certain times to have children with. So God does not create sickness, he doesn't create disease, he doesn't create deformity. And so kids born with spinal bifida, this is not an act of God. This is a consequence of a creation that's damaged biologically and otherwise from sin. So I I, I had a couple more controversial things in the lesson, but... um, I guess we can stop with that. Oh, I, no, I do, this is a good point. It's about Cain, brother's keeper, in, the, in, in, in Thursday's lesson. Let me just say this really quick. Um, what does it mean to be your brother's keeper? What was Cain held responsible for? He was not held responsible for Abel's health or Abel's choices or Abel's conduct. Cain was held responsible for his conduct and how he treated Abel. 
In other words, he didn't pursue the health and welfare and blessings of Abel. He pursued injuring and harming Abel. So you're, you're your brother's keeper, not that you're responsible for the condition of the other person. You're responsible for the way you interact and the way you use your resources in dealing with the other person. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an amazing God of love who has given us amazing abilities in your image with not just reproductive capacities, but intelligence to understand you and your methods. And we ask for your spirit of truth and love to transform us to be like you, to give us wisdom and discernment in various circumstances in life so that we know how to act moment to moment to best reflect you and to carry forward your purposes. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.